Part Two, Chapter Eighteen of Burning Daylight by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Daylight had been wholly truthful when he told Dede that he had had no real friends. On speaking terms with thousands, on fellowship and drinking terms with hundreds, he was a lonely man. He failed to find the one man or group of several men with whom he could be really intimate. Cities did not make for comradeship as did the Alaskan Trail. Besides, the types of men were different. Scornful and contemptuous of businessmen on the one hand, on the other, his relations with the San Francisco bosses had been more an alliance of expediency than anything else. He had felt more of a kinship for the franker brutality of the bosses and their captains, but they had failed to claim any deep respect. They were too prone to crookedness. Bonds were better than men's word in this modern world, and one had to look carefully to the bonds. In the old Yukon days it had been different. Bonds didn't go. A man said he had so much, and even in a poker game his appeasement was accepted. Larry Hagan, who rose ably to the largest demands of Daylight's operations, and who had few illusions and less hypocrisy, might have proven a chum had it not been for his temperamental twist. Strange genius that he was, a Napoleon of the law, with a power of visioning that far exceeded Daylight's, he had nothing in common with Daylight outside the office. He spent his time with books, a thing daylight could not abide. Also, he devoted himself to the endless writing of plays, which never got beyond manuscript form, and though daylight only sensed the secret taint of it, was a confirmed but temperate eater of hashish. Hagen lived all his life cloistered with books in a world of agitation. With the outdoor world, he had no understanding, no tolerance. In food and drink, he was abstemious as a monk, while exercise was a thing abhorrent. Daylight's friendships, in lieu of anything closer, were drinking friendships and roistering friendships. And with the passing of the Sunday rides with Dede, he fell back more and more upon these for diversion. The cocktail wall of inhibition he reared more assiduously than ever. The big red motor car was out more frequently now, while a stable hand was hired to give Bob exercise. In his early San Francisco days, there had been intervals of easement between his deals. But in this present biggest deal of all, the strain was unremitting. Not in a month or two or three could his huge land investment be carried to a successful consummation. And so complete and wide-reaching was it that complications and knotty situations constantly arose. Every day brought its problems, and when he had solved them in his masterful way, he left the office in his big car, almost sighing with relief at anticipation of the approaching double martini. Rarely was he made tipsy. His constitution was too strong for that. Instead, he was that direst of all drinkers, the steady drinker, deliberate and controlled, who
who averaged a far higher quantity of alcohol than the irregular and violent drinker. For six weeks hard running, he had seen nothing of Dede except in the office, and there he resolutely refrained from making approaches. But by the seventh Sunday his hunger for her overmastered him. It was a stormy day. A heavy southeast gale was blowing, and squall after squall of rain and wind swept over the city. He could not take his mind off her, and a persistent picture came to him of her sitting by a window and sewing feminine fripperies of some sort. When the time came for his first pre-luncheon cocktail to be served to him in his rooms, he did not take it. Filled with a daring determination, he glanced at his notebook for Dede's telephone number and called for the switch. At first it was her landlady's daughter who was raised, but in a minute he heard the voice he had been hungry to hear. "'I just wanted to tell you that I'm coming out to see you,' he said. "'I didn't want to break in on you without warning. That was all.' "'Has something happened?' came her voice. "'I'll tell you when I get there,' he evaded. He left the red car two blocks away and arrived on foot at the pretty, three-storied, shingled Berkeley house. For an instant only he was aware of an inward hesitancy, but the next moment he rang the bell. He knew that what he was doing was in direct violation of her wishes, and that he was setting her a difficult task to receive as a Sunday caller the multimillionaire and notorious Elim Harnish of newspaper fame. On the other hand, the one thing he did not expect of her was what he would have termed silly female capers. And in this he was not disappointed. She came herself to the door to receive him and shake hands with him. He hung his Macintosh and hat on the rack in the comfortable square hall and turned to her for direction. They are busy in there, she said, indicating the parlor, from which came the boisterous voices of young people, and through the open door of which he could see several college youths. So you will have to come into my rooms. She led the way through the door opening out of the hall to the right, and once inside he stood awkwardly rooted to the floor, gazing about him and at her, and all the time trying not to gaze. In his perturbation, he failed to hear and see her invitation to a seat. So these were her quarters. The intimacy of it, and her making no fuss about it, was startling. But it was no more than he would have expected of her. It was almost two rooms in one. The one room he was in, evidently the sitting room, and the other he could see into, the bedroom. Beyond an oaken dressing table, with an orderly litter of combs and brushes and dainty feminine knick-knacks, there was no sign of it being used as a bedroom. The broad couch with a cover of old rose and banked high with cushions, he decided, must be the bed, but it was farthest from any experience of a civilized bed he had ever had. Not that he saw much of detail in that awkward moment of standing. His general impression was one of warmth and comfort and beauty. There were no carpets, and on the hardwood floor he caught a glimpse of several wolf and coyote skins. What captured and perceptibly held his eye, for a moment, 
was a crouched Venus that stood on a Steinway upright against the background of mountain lion skin on the wall. But it was Dede herself that smote most sharply upon sense and perception. He had always cherished the idea that she was very much a woman. The lines of her figure, her hair, her eyes, her voice, and bird-like laughing ways had all contributed to this, but here, in her own rooms, clad in some flowing, clinging gown, the emphasis of sex was startling. He had been accustomed to her only in trim tailor suits and shirtwaists, or in riding costume of velvet corduroy, and he was not prepared for this new revelation. She seemed so much softer, so much more pliant and tender and lissome. She was a part of this atmosphere of quietude and beauty. She fitted into it just as she had fitted in with the sober office furnishings. Won't you sit down, she repeated. He felt like an animal long denied food. His hunger for her welled up in him, and he proceeded to wolf the dainty morsel before him. Here was no patience, no diplomacy. The straightest direct way was none too quick for him, and, had he known it, the least unsuccessful way he could have chosen. Look here, he said, in a voice that shook with passion, there's one thing I won't do, and that's proposed to you in the office. That's why I'm here. Dee Dee Mason, I want you. I just want you. While he spoke, he advanced upon her, his black eyes burning with bright fire, his aroused blood swarthy in his cheek. So precipitate was he that she had barely time to cry out her involuntary alarm and to step back, at the same time catching one of his hands as he attempted to gather her into his arms. In contrast to him, the blood had suddenly left her cheeks. The hand that had warded his off, and that still held it, was trembling. She relaxed her fingers, and his arm dropped to his side. She wanted to say something, do something, to pass on from the awkwardness of the situation, but no intelligent thought nor action came into her mind. She was aware only of a desire to laugh. This impulse was partly hysterical, and partly spontaneous humor, the latter growing from instant to instant. Amazing as the affair was, the ridiculous side of it was not veiled to her. She felt like one who had suffered the terror of the onslaught of a murderous footpad, only to find out that it was an innocent pedestrian asking the time. Daylight was the quicker to achieve action. Oh, I know. I'm a sure enough fool, he said. I, I guess I'll sit down. Don't be scared, Miss Mason. I'm not real dangerous. I'm not afraid, she answered with a smile, slipping down herself into a chair besides which, on the floor, stood a sewing basket, from which, Daylight noted, some white fluffy thing of lace and muslin overflowed. Again she smiled, though I confess you did startle me for the moment. It's funny, Daylight sighed, almost with regret. Here I am, strong enough to bend you around and tie knots in you. Here I am, used to having my will with man and beast and anything, 
and here I am sitting in this chair as weak and helpless as a little lamb. You sure take the starch out of me. Deedee vainly cudgeled her brains in quest for a reply to these remarks. Instead, her thought dwelt insistently upon the significance of his stepping aside in the middle of a violent proposal in order to make irrelevant remarks. What struck her was the man's certitude. So little did he doubt that he would have her, that he could afford to pause and generalize upon love and the effects of love. She noted his hand unconsciously, slipping in the familiar way into the side coat pocket where she knew he carried his tobacco and brown papers. "'You may smoke if you want to,' she said. He withdrew his hand with a jerk, as if something in the pocket had stung him. "'No, I wasn't thinking of smoking. I was thinking of you. What's a man to do when he wants a woman but ask her to marry him? That's all that I'm doing.' I can't do it in style, I know that, but I can use straight English, and that's good enough for me. I want you mighty bad, Miss Mason. You're in my mind most all the time now, and what I want to know is, well, do you want me? That's all. I wish you hadn't asked, she said softly. Maybe it's best you should know a few things before you give me an answer, he went on, ignoring the fact that the answer had already been given. I never went after a woman before in my life, all reports to the contrary notwithstanding. The stuff you read about me in the papers and books about me being a lady-killer is all wrong. There's not an iota of truth in it. I guess I've done more than my share of card-playing and whiskey-drinking, but women I've let alone. There was a woman that killed herself but I didn't know she wanted me that bad, or else I'd have married her. Not for love, but to keep her from killing herself. She was the best of the boiling, but I never gave her any encouragement. I'm telling you all this because you've read about it, and I want you to get it straight from me. Lady killer, he snorted. Why, Miss Mason, I don't mind telling you that I've sure been scared of women all my life. You're the first one I've not been afraid of. That's the strange thing about it. I just plumb worship you, and yet I'm not afraid of you. Maybe it's because you're different from the women I know. You never chased me, lady killer. Why, I've been running away from ladies ever since I can remember. And I guess all that saved me was that I was strong in the wind and that I never fell down and broke a leg or anything. I didn't ever want to get married until after I met you, and until a long time after I met you. I cottoned to you from the start, but I never thought it would get as bad as marriage. Why, I can't get to sleep nights thinking of you and wanting you. He came to a stop and waited. She had taken the lace and muslin from the basket, possibly to settle her nerves and wits, and was sewing upon it. As she was not looking at him, he devoured her with his eyes. He noted the firm, efficient hands, hands that could control a horse like Bob, that could run a typewriter almost as fast as a man could talk, that could sew on dainty garments, and that, doubtlessly, could play on the piano over there in the corner. Another ultra-feminine detail he noticed 
her slippers. They were small and bronze. He had never imagined she had such a small foot. Street shoes and riding boots were all that he had ever seen on her feet, and they had given no advertisement of this. The bronze slippers fascinated him, and to them his eyes repeatedly turned. A knock came at the door, which she answered. Daylight could not help hearing the conversation. She was wanted at the telephone. Tell him to call up again in ten minutes, he heard her say, and the masculine pronoun caused in him a flashing twinge of jealousy. Well, he decided, whoever it was, burning daylight would give him a run for his money. The marvel to him was that a girl like Dee Dee hadn't been married long since. She came back smiling to him and resumed her sewing. His eyes wandered from the efficient hands to the bronze slippers and back again, and he swore to himself that there were mighty few stenographers like her in existence. That was because she must have come of pretty good stock and had a pretty good raisin. Nothing else could explain these rooms of hers and the clothes she wore and the way she wore them. Those ten minutes are flying, he suggested. I can't marry you, she said. You don't love me? She shook her head. Do you like me the littlest bit? This time she nodded, at the same time allowing the smile of amusement to play on her lips. But it was amusement without contempt. The humorous side of a situation rarely appealed in vain to her. Well, that's something to go on, he announced. You've got to make a start to get started. I just liked you at first, and look what it's grown into. You recollect, you said you didn't like my way of life. Well, I've changed it a heap. I ain't gambling like I used to. I've gone into what you called the legitimate, making two minutes grow where one grew before. Three hundred thousand folks where only a hundred thousand grew before. And this time next year, there'll be two million eucalyptus growing on the hills. Say, do you like me more than the littlest bit? She raised her eyes from her work and looked at him as she answered. I like you a great deal, but... He waited a moment for her to complete the sentence, failing which he went on himself. I haven't an exaggerated opinion of myself, so I know I ain't bragging when I say I'll make a pretty good husband. You'd find I was no hand at nagging and fault-finding. I can guess what it must be for a woman like you to be independent. Well, you'd be independent as my wife. No strings on you. You could follow your own sweet will, and nothing would be too good for you. I'd give you everything your heart desired. Except yourself, she interrupted suddenly, almost sharply. Daylight's astonishment was momentary. I don't know about that. I'd be straight and square and live true. I don't hanker after divided affections. I don't mean that, she said. Instead of giving yourself to your wife, you would give yourself to the three hundred thousand people of Oakland, to your street railways and ferry routes, to the two million trees on the hills, to everything business, and, and to all that that means. 
I'd see that I didn't, he declared stoutly. I'd be yours to command. You think so, but it would turn out differently. She suddenly became nervous. We must stop this talk. It's too much like attempting to drive a bargain. How much will you give? I'll give so much. I want more. And all that. I like you, but not enough to marry you. And I'll never like you enough to marry you. How do you know that? he demanded. Because I like you less and less. Daylight sat dumbfounded. The hurt showed itself plainly in his face. Oh, you don't understand, she cried wildly, beginning to lose self-control. It's not that way, I mean. I do like you. The more I've known you, the more I've liked you. And at the same time, the more I've known you, the less would I care to marry you. This enigmatic utterance completed Daylight's perplexity. Don't you see, she hurried on, I could have far easier married the Elam Harnish, fresh from the Klondike, when I first laid eyes on him long ago, than marry you sitting before me now. He shook his head slowly. That's one too many for me. The more you know and like a man, the less you want to marry him. Familiarity breeds contempt. I guess that's what you mean. No, no, she cried. But before she could continue, a knock came on the door. The ten minutes is up, Daylight said. His eyes, quick with observation, like an Indian's, darted about the room while she was out. The impression of warmth and comfort and beauty predominated, though he was unable to analyze it, while the simplicity delighted him. Expensive simplicity, he decided, and most of it leftovers from the time her father went broke and died. He had never before appreciated a plain hardwood floor with a couple of wolfskins. It sure beat all the carpets in creation. He stared solemnly at a bookcase containing a couple of hundred books. There was mystery. He could not understand what people found so much to write about. Writing things and reading things were not the same as doing things. And he, himself primarily a man of action, doing things was alone comprehensible. His gaze passed on from the crouched Venus to a little tea-table with all its fragile and exquisite accessories, and to a shining copper kettle and copper chafing-dish. Chafing-dishes were not unknown to him, and he wondered if she concocted suppers on this one for some of those university young men he had heard whispered about. One or two watercolors on the wall made him conjecture that she had painted them herself. There were photographs of horses and old masters, and the trailing purple of a burial of Christ held him for a time. But ever his gaze returned to that crouched Venus on the piano. To his homely, frontier-trained mind, it seemed curious that a nice young woman should have such a bold, if not sinful, object on display in her own room. But he reconciled himself to it by an act of faith. Since it was Deedee, it must be eminently all right. Evidently such things went along with culture. Larry Hagan had similar casts and photographs in his book-cluttered quarters. But then Larry Hagan was different. 
there was that hint of unhealth about him that daylight invariably sensed in his presence, while Dede, on the contrary, seemed always so robustly wholesome, radiating an atmosphere compounded of the sun and wind and dust of the open road. And yet, if such a clean, healthy woman as she went in for naked women crouching on her piano, it must be all right. Dede made it all right. She could come pretty close to making anything all right. Besides, he didn't understand culture anyway. She re-entered the room, and as she crossed it to her chair, he admired the way she walked, while the bronze slippers were maddening. "'I'd like to ask you several questions,' he began immediately. "'Are you thinking of marrying somebody?' She laughed merrily and shook her head. "'Do you like anybody else more than you like me?' That man at the phone just now, for instance. There isn't anybody else. I don't know anybody I like well enough to marry. For that matter, I don't think I'm a marrying woman. Office work seems to spoil one for that. Daylight ran his eyes over her, from her face to the tip of a bronze slipper, in a way that made the color mantle in her cheeks. At the same time, he shook his head skeptically. It strikes me that you are the most marionist woman that ever made a man sit up and take notice. And now another question, you see. I've just got to locate the lay of the land. Is there anybody you like as much as you like me? But Dede had herself well in hand. That's unfair, she said, and if you'd stop and consider you will find that you are doing the very thing you disclaimed, namely, nagging. I refuse to answer any more of your questions. Let us talk about other things. How is Bob? Half an hour later, whirling along through the rain on Telegraph Avenue, toward Oakland, Daylight smoked one of his brown paper cigarettes and reviewed what had taken place. It was not at all bad, was his summing up, though there had been much about it that was baffling. There was that liking him the more she knew him, and at the same time wanting to marry him less. That was a puzzler. But the fact that she had refused him carried with it a certain elation. In refusing him, she had refused his thirty million dollars. That was going some for a ninety-dollar-a-month stenographer who had known better ties. She wasn't after money. That was patent. Every woman he had encountered had seemed willing to swallow him down for the sake of his money. Why, he had doubled his fortune, made fifteen million, since the day she first came to work for him. And behold, any willingness to marry him she might have possessed had diminished as his money had increased. Gosh, he muttered, if I clean up a hundred million on this land deal... She won't even be on speaking terms with me. But he could not smile the thing away. It remained to baffle him, that enigmatic statement of hers, that she could more easily have married the Elam Harnish, fresh from the Klondike, than the present Elam Harnish. Well, he concluded, the thing to do was for him to become more like that old-time Daylight, who had come down out of the North to try his luck at the bigger game. But that was impossible. He could not set back 
the flight of time. Wishing wouldn't do it, and there was no other way. He might as well wish himself a boy again. Another satisfaction he'd cuddled to himself from their interview. He had heard of stenographers before who refused their employers and who invariably quit their positions immediately afterward. But Dede had not even hinted at such a thing. No matter how baffling she was, there was no nonsensical silliness about her. She was level-headed, but also he had been level-headed and was partly responsible for this. He hadn't taken advantage of her in the office, true. He had twice overstepped the bounds, but he had not followed it up and made a practice of it. She knew she could trust him, but in spite of all this he was confident that most young women would have been silly enough to resign a position with a man they had turned down. And besides, after he had put it to her in the right light, she had not been silly over his sending her brother to Germany. Gee, he concluded, as the car drew up before his hotel, if I'd only known it as I do now, I'd have popped the question the first day she came to work. According to her say-so, that would have been the proper moment. She likes me more and more, and the more she likes me, the less she cares to marry me. Now what do you think of that? She sure must be fooling. End of Part 2 Chapter 18